So our topic for today's sermon is the faith of a father. It's taken from our text, our main text today will be Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And as we're all aware, today being the third Sunday in June, we celebrate Father's Day in this nation. An interesting thing that I didn't really realize, I don't think, is that Father's Day was not officially recognized by our Congress uh, until 1972. That's when it became an official holiday. And 1972, to me, seems like it wasn't that long ago. To many of you, it's ancient history, but I was a freshman in high school when that happened, and, and I don't really recall when this happened, it being that momentous of a thing. Um, so I, I kind of looked into it, and Father's Day really uh, came around in the early 20th century in 19. 19- 09, this young woman by the name of um, Sarah Smart Dodd, who lived in Spokane, Washington, there was a Mother's Day observance at her church. And Sarah, along with her six brothers, were raised by a widowed father. And so Sarah did not have a mother in her life for much of her growing up. Her mother died in childbirth with one of her younger brothers. So Sarah thought that there should be a day to commemorate fathers because all of all her father had done in her life. Now, Father's Day got off to a slow start. There was a bit of resistance from it. And interestingly, primarily the resistance was from fathers, that they did not really feel a need for this day. And if we think back to that time, we can understand it, because fathers at that point were really the centers of their family. They were the patriarchs of the family, and fathers were honored every single day by the family following their lead. And fathers really thought that mothers were the ones that should be recognized, because mothers were kind of forgotten. Now, in our day and age, that seems really odd. It's kind of backwards now, isn't it? So Sarah started this campaign to honor fathers. And interestingly, compared to what we see today, where it's a very commercialized holiday, as are most of our holidays, the holiday, the commemoration started in the church. They were church-based commemoratives. Fathers weren't, as I said, weren't real hot on this idea. Many of them saw it as a way for merchants to make money. They knew of Mother's Day. That was becoming quite popular. And Mother's Day was a day that was connected with flowers and sentimentality, which most fathers did not feel connected to them. And they just saw it as maybe a scheme to get money out of their pockets to buy them gifts you know, their, their gifts would be paid for out of their own wages, which is true, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, uh, and in fact, as we went into the Great Depression, that really was true. It became a merchandising scheme. Merchants were not selling merchandise, and so they started to capitalize on this idea of uh, Father's Day. And little by little, it became more greatly recognized. We think of it today, we think of the role of fathers in the 20th century and what we've seen happen with that. 
Um, we think about, at least I think about, you know, the TV shows I experienced growing up, where we started off when TV shows became very prevalent, where fathers were dispensing sage advice to their family, to their children, where they were truly depicted as the leaders in fictional families on television, until the point where we started to see probably in the 70s with All in the Family, if you remember that one, and then greater, it became more more greatly prevalent, where fathers became the butts of jokes, where fathers were basically um, bumbling idiots that needed to be schooled by their children and by their wives continually. This showed the... the um, the change in the culture, where, where, how fathers were being looked upon. We even see it in the churches. We saw this starting in the churches, where in some, even the father, person of the Trinity, was spoken of from some pulpits with an often apologetic tone, because the, the, the spirit of the age was anti-father. It was anti-authority. And when fathers were spoken of, there was almost a de rigueur, a a required element to this that we must mention bad fathers because people needed to be aware there were bad fathers. Well, think of that if we were giving a Mother's Day commemoration. Would we have to tell, would we want to tell people, well, there are bad mothers, you know. We seem to want to do this with, with people in positions of authority in, in our age. We see it not only with fathers, we see it, for example, with police officers. Anytime a police officer, an incident involving one is mentioned, it seems like some people uh, are required to say, well, you know, there, there, there are bad police officers. We don't say that when we talk about bakers or tailors or candlestick makers, if there's bad people in those groups, we're all fallen human beings, right? But when we talk about authority, do you see the connection here between fathers and other authority figures? That there's a demeaning of authority going on. And that's the heart and the target of the attack that we're seeing on human fathers today. Central to this is a rebellion against God. Now, of course, in the Bible, there are many examples of fathers. And what I want to do today is I want to give an example of a godly father. I want to give an example of a father who is the type of father that all of us men hope that we could be. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 29. We're going to read the account of when Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Follow along with me, please. And when they, Mark writes, and they being Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jesus and his three uh, most innermost disciples and his innermost band came, and they had been up on a mountaintop, When they came to the disciples, that's the rest, the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for whom, for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that the most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So as we see at the beginning, like I said, Jesus and his three closest disciples had been away from the main group of disciples. Peter, James, and John had accompanied our Lord on a high mountain where they witnessed the transfiguration. This happens earlier in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. And there's a problem that we have with our modern Bibles, with our modern translations, with the chapter and verse divisions. We read what um, is called, in literary or theological terms, a pericope. That's a small account, right? And, and And we sometimes fail to connect these accounts because we're just reading pieces of it. Um, But this is not how the original audience would have heard things. It's not how they would have read it. They would have been reading one continual story or hearing one continual story in Mark's gospel. So there's a tie-in between the transfiguration and this father bringing his poor demonized son to Christ. And we should see this connection. It just makes it that much richer. And I'm going to point out a few things to you. And as 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 we go through... The, uh, the, our main account, keep this transfiguration in mind. And perhaps you might come up with some other connections. They'd gone to the top of a mountain, a very high mountain. And I think, as, as do some um, other con- commentators, I think it's Mount Hermon, which is na- near Caesarea Philippi. Um, and they witnessed, the, these three close disciples of, witness, of Christ witnessed the glory of the Father in the Son. And they saw the long dead prophets of God. They saw Elijah and Moses. They saw them alive and conversing with Jesus. And this is contrary to what we're going to see in the healing where the powers of darkness are trying to kill. With the Father, we have life. With the powers of darkness, we have death. 
these disciples hear God the Father speaking to them. And they're told to listen and obey the Father's beloved Son. Contrary to these powers of darkness who have prevented this human father's words from being heard by his beloved son, who is mute and deaf because of the Spirit. They will witness the powers of darkness later in this healing. They will witness how they must listen and obey the Son of God when he speaks. So these things had just occurred, and the next day they return. According to Luke, it's the next day. And when they return, they see a large crowd surrounding the other nine disciples, and they're scribes in this crowd. The scribes are like experts in religious law. Luke refers to them as lawyers. Um, in Mark, earlier in his gospel, he talks about the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, we all heard of the Pharisees. Those are like the main opponents of Jesus through his earthly ministry. Not all of them, but, but many of them. So the scribes of the Pharisees might be considered an elite group amongst this Jewish sect of the Pharisees. Jesus' sudden appearance is a welcome relief to the nine disciples there and those in the crowd also that have a favorable attitude towards Jesus. And it's apparent from their reaction that they'd not expected Jesus to return as quickly as he did. It's an unexpected return. Mark tells us they were greatly amazed to see him and ran up to him. So the scribes that are involved in this argument couldn't very easily stay behind, so they also had to approach Jesus. Now, Jesus is aware of his disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings, yet he loves them. So he comes to their rescue. And you, brother and sister Christian, are no less in your master's eyes than these men of the original 12. You are loved greatly by your Savior. So Jesus turns to these scribes and asks, what are you arguing about with them? And these scribes, just moments ago, remember, were overflowing with malicious glee. And what happens now? They're struck silent. They don't say a word. They're mute in the face of Christ. In this next part, we see, we're going to see our first point in my sermon. Godly fathers love and care for their children. And even though this may seem obvious, I do think it needs to be emphasized. And we see this when a lone voice speaks out from the crowd in response to Jesus' questioning of the scribes. And this voice in verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Luke gives us a description of this incident. And in Luke, Luke's description, you can, you can sense, better sense the pathos in this. You can hear the tears and the fears in this father's voice. And this is what Luke remembered, or this is what Luke was told, and this is what he wrote down. What this father said was, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now we know what the Talmud, this this murmuring in the crowd was all about between the scribes and the disciples. The disciples were trying to cast out a demon, an unclean spirit from this boy. A boy who had been rendered mute and deaf since childhood, subjected to something like grand mall seizures. This was a dreadful, dreadful condition. The boy didn't merely fall down. He was violently seized by a demon and thrown down, thrown down again and again. And the disciples had failed in their attempt to rescue this boy from demonic torment. And the scribes were ridiculing their failure. Undoubtedly accusing them of heresy and sin and that their unrighteousness to the fact that they did not follow proper Jewish purification was why they were powerless in dealing with spiritual evil. Note well how the scribes were quick to point fingers at the disciples, but they themselves did not lift a finger to help this father and his son. Imagine the plight of this father. I think we can see the fact that he was unaware that Jesus was absent from the sin, excuse me, from the scene. Because it implies that he traveled some distance and was probably not a local resident. A local resident would have known Jesus wasn't with the, the, the band of nine. So this journey undertaken by the father and his son, they probably made this alone. There's no mention of a mother uh, in, in this account. And imagine the difficulties his father faced. These difficulties would have been immense, traveling with his son who's being thrown down to the ground again and again, suffering seizures. Father and son unable to communicate with each other. The father at the whole time All he can do is watch, basically helplessly, doing the best he can to protect his son from injury and death. Then when he finally arrives at the place where he's heard this miracle worker from from Nazareth is to be found, he discovers that Jesus is not there. So in desperation, he asks Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon. And why shouldn't he ask this of them? Did not casting out demons and healing the sick belong to the task that had been assigned to the disciples by the master? In Matthew 10.1, Matthew writes, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And were not the disciples to a great extent successful? Mark tells us in chapter 6, And they, the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Yet they fail in their attempt to deliver this boy from his torment. And on top of that, this father sees his son's suffering now brushed aside by the scribes. That's not important to these experts in the law. 
The hope the father had of healing is replaced by irrelevancy, shunning, and ridicule that society heaped upon this father and son undoubtedly for many years. Imagine this father probably facing unwarranted accusations of sin by himself and by his fathers as the reason why his child is suffering. People saying, it's too bad, but they must deserve it. Or it's too bad, but why must we have to put up with it? Or it's too bad, but why doesn't that man keep the boy locked away? The love and the care this father had for his son is evident in the fact of what he went through, bringing this child to this place and into this crowd in an attempt to obtain healing. He had put aside everything in his life. He had put aside his pride. He put aside his prestige in society for the sake of his boy. The second point that we should see in this is a godly father's role includes protecting his family. So this man is facing a father's worst fear. Something that I can tell you stems from the deepest heart of manhood, and that is the fear of being helpless. Helplessness in dealing with a grave threat to his only child, his son. Fathers are supposed to be the family's bulwark against the threats of this world, right? That's what we think. That's what we men think. We, this comes from our very core. Ladies, understand that about the men in your family, the fathers in your family. A good father is ready to spring into action when his child cries out in fear, Daddy! That's what God has built into us. And how many times had this particular father experienced this helplessness of not being able to help his child? Suddenly, this father is given hope again. Jesus unexpectedly appears. Right? We saw at the beginning of this pericope, no one was expecting him. He's here. Oh, how lucky this father is. Oh, how fortunate this father is. Oh, it happened to be in the right place at the right time. Just circumstantial stuff. No, absolutely not. This is God's plan. This boy was going to be healed. Jesus came to this place at this time unexpectedly for this healing. That's how God operates. Jesus' appearance stills the chaos of the situation. And he listens as the Father begins to talk. Think of how infrequently this father was probably listened to. And Jesus is deeply moved. How do we know that? We can see it in his response. We can see that he feels the pain and indignation of the father himself. And we see this in verse 19. At the beginning of that clause, there's an interjection. In our English translations, it's a capital O, O. In an English word, it would be O-H, exclamation mark. Oh, Jesus says. 
He answered them. Verse 19 in full says, And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The fact that he directed, Jesus directed, his complaint to this generation gives us a clue as to who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to just the disciples. He's speaking to this generation. But he's certainly including the disciples in this. He's not excluding them because they failed to persevere in prayer. So it's their faith specifically that Jesus has in view regarding the failure to cast out this demon. There's certainly a lack of faith in the scribes and the crowd, but their faith is not required in this healing. It doesn't matter. It's not like, you know, if we, uh, you know, in some circles, charismatic circles, everybody has to join in in faith and the faith has to be perfect for things to occur. No, that's not what we're seeing here. Jesus isn't saying, well, there's someone in this crowd that doesn't believe and it's just not going to happen. No. The scribes in the crowd do demonstrate that they are part of this faithless generation. He's speaking, Jesus is speaking about the scribes gloating over the disciples' failures rather than showing compassion for this suffering boy. And he's certainly speaking also to the crowd, which is consistently shown in the Gospels. The crowd, the crowd, with quotation marks around it, is consistently shown as being much more concerned about themselves, individual self-interest, rather than about others. We see this through all of the Gospels. Many of these people in the crowd which are present are there for the entertainment factor. Nothing like watching a good exorcism to to liven up a dull day, right? Or better yet, better yet than that, a fight between the scribes and this band of charlatans who claim to be able to cast out demons and are certainly ineffectual. Stuff like this is grist for talk for days to come. Oh, joy, something different besides the sheep and the crops. So to a greater or lesser extent, all present at this point in time, were faithless. Jesus is addressing everyone. He asks a rhetorical question, which is literally translated as, how long do I have to put up with you? Jesus says this because in, in, in his in view, really, what I'm saying this is his own trust in, in his heavenly Father and the faultless confidence that exists in the Trinity, in his own, Jesus' own tender and infinite love, which was so different, so different than what he experienced daily during his earthly ministry from the crowds around him, from the religious experts, from his band of disciples. And here in this account, we are near the end of his ministry. It's been almost three years now. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. His final visit, his final excursion to Jerusalem. And we can hear in what he just said, we can hear our Lord is longing for the end of this earthly journey. And at the end of verse 19, Jesus says these marvelous 
words. Bring him to me. Jesus' lament regarding the lack of faith that he has found on earth is followed by this positive comment, this positive command. In Greek, literally, he says, be bringing him to me. The verb to bring here is plural, so he's probably speaking to the disciples who are still ministering to this boy who might go into this seizure at any moment. By this heartwarming and positive command, Jesus presents the perfect example of how to respond during annoying and distressing circumstances. In the firmness of this command, in this firmness, we can see a promise. Bring him to me. There's no doubting of ability in this command, is there? What is needed will be completed without a doubt. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Mark describes this violent reaction that besets the boy when he's brought into the Lord's presence. This makes it clear that this is not an ordinary case of of epilepsy. And, And some people make this mistake. It's like, oh, this poor lad, he had epilepsy. And look at these, these ancient people in their superstitious world, they just assumed it was a demon. No, our Lord knows the difference between a, an epileptic condition and a demonized boy. This boy is demonized. He is, has an unclean spirit that is tormenting him. And we can see it. It's not the same as epilepsy because he is thrown into this fit when he's brought into the Lord's presence. This is a reaction of unclean spirits. We see this time and time again in the Gospels, even in the the book of Acts, when the apostles go out. We see how, how demons react to the messengers of God, much less God the Son himself. This demon knows he is facing his doom. Point number three that I want us to recognize is God uses our roles as fathers to grow our faith. And we see this in verse 21, the first part of verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? The Lord of all life knows the answer to this question. When the great physician asks questions, he's not seeking information which he does not possess. It's not like when we go to our doctor who doesn't know about our background and our medical record. Christ knows all, yet he asks questions, doesn't he? We see this throughout the gospel. But when Christ asks questions, it's not that he's attempting to obtain information. He is drawing attention to something specific, to something in particular. In this case, I suggest it is to cause the Father to reflect on the length of suffering that the powers of darkness have subjected his son to and from which the boy is about to be delivered. 
it brings back into the father's mind from when he was a little child. Imagine all the scenes flashing through this father's mind's eye as he explains this to Jesus. And it's also asked in order that the self-absorbed crowd surrounding them will be completely aware of the greatness of this sign that they are about to witness, that this is something that has tormented this child basically his entire life. And the father answered and said, from childhood, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So the father goes beyond the information requested by Christ. And the love of this father is evident in the added information. What he tells Jesus and what we're told is not only is his son suffering, but the demon is trying to kill his little boy. This is a life and death battle that is raging over this small child. And the father adds, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father is speaking a petition here to Christ, not a command. Far be it from him to command the Lord to do anything. But if you can do anything. There's a hesitancy here, right, that we can detect. Do you think he doubts Jesus? Although some, some will charge this father with unbelief and conclude that, that when Jesus talks about the faithless generation, he's including this father in that because of what the father says here. But, but no, I don't, th- I don't think so. I don't agree with that. I really, I really think that's wrong. And I think if we, if we think that, then we are somewhat lacking in awareness of our own fallen condition. And we're lacking in compassion much like that of which the scribes and the crowds suffered from, that we're demanding perfection of this Father. But are we perfect? No, far from it. And we must remember, in this account we're told, this Father had just experienced the failure of Jesus' disciples to cast out this demon. He had just experienced failure, but yet he has faith left in him. He didn't leave in disgust and disappointment after the disciples failed. And these men, these disciples who failed previously, had been joyfully successful. So imagine how they reacted to this. This they're, they're, they're puzzled by it. They don't understand. This is a big letdown. Luke tells us when they returned after Jesus sent them out two by two, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Imagine the exhaustion of this father in having to keep watch over his son to prevent the demon from killing him. How many years of this had the father endured? How many other futile attempts at deliverance had he experienced prior to this? 
It's hard to believe that this would have been the first time he's ever had tried to have this boy delivered. There were, there were exorcists all over Judea at this time and before the time of Christ. It was a big thing in Jewish circles, as it was in all the ancient Near East. Although the situation is grievous, the father does display hope. And perhaps his faith is not perfect, but our faith is not always perfect, is it? He believes that Jesus is willing to help, but he isn't sure Jesus is able to help. And we can contrast this in Mark's gospel in chapter 1. There's an account of the healing of a leper. And this leper knew Jesus was able to help him, but he wasn't sure Jesus was willing to help him. So which attitude is a sign of greater faith? I think that's an improper question. I don't think we can judge that, can we? Is Jesus willing or is he not willing? Is he able or is he not able? There's doubt there. So, But our faith is not a matter of competition, is it? There are times when we will all struggle with our faith. Either the doubt of this father, whether God is able to heal, or the doubt of the leper, whether God is willing to heal. And I think that's why these accounts are in the gospel. We are to connect with them. They resonate with us. And what does Jesus promise us about our faith? He promises us great things, right? If our faith is as tiny as a mustard seed. One of the tiniest seeds there are, I'm told. So the Father adds a poignant plea to this. Jesus, have pity on us and help us. Have pity on us and help us us. Notice how closely this father identifies with his child. This certainly is demonstrative of a loving and caring father. If his son is in anguish, then he too is in anguish. You fathers listening to this, I know you have felt this. I have felt this as a father. All of us have fathers and perhaps our fathers have felt this anguish. This father is suffering alongside his son, but he protects him as best he can. And he alone, at least here, speaks for his son as the demon has made him mute. And one of the difficult things we must learn as fathers is there comes a point in time when we must no longer speak for our sons, when our sons must speak for themselves. Let me tell you, that's a difficult point to determine and to stick to as a father. Jesus replies to him. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So Jesus here, he's turning the question around, really. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the question is not whether I can, because I most definitely can. Rather, the question is, can you believe? A major point in the Gospels is Jesus' emphasis on faith. And it's not that human faith causes or caused healing, no. But here's the thing. Faith is to precede healing. Faith is to come before healing. It must work this way in God's economy. 
Why must it? Because this is what God has determined. We read this in his revealed word. And also, it's because a temporary alleviation of suffering is pointless if the sufferer is left in a dead-end alley of faithfulness leading to eternal separation from God. And Jesus says everything is possible for him who believes, for one who believes. Why? Why is this? Is this just the power of positive thinking? No, no, it's not. Otherwise, Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller and Joel Olstein would be true prophets. But they're not. They're false prophets. True faith is not about removing limits from fallen sinners like these men I just mentioned preach. No. Rather, true faith sets no limits on God. We do not limit our God. We cannot limit our God. And the truly faithful submit to God as ultimately sovereign in all things. And immediately, in verse 24, we read, The father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the father's response is immediate. He didn't have to dwell this over. He didn't have to mull it over in his mind. He didn't have to, well, I've got to think about this a bit. It's immediate and it consists only of five words in English and in Greek. There's a sincere profession of faith, I believe, and an earnest, moving petition, help my unbelief. What does this mean, help my unbelief? It's a cry for help from one who realizes the limitations that sin places on us all. That moment by moment, Day by day, this Father, I, all of you, need the Spirit of Christ to come to our aid so that we may overcome our unbelief. And in verse 25, we read that the crowd reacts to this. Suddenly the crowd, which perhaps, we don't know, we're not told by Mark, maybe they had drawn back a bit, but they come running forward. Or maybe more people had been attracted by what was going on People maybe had sent the word out, man, you got to come see this. And the crowd grows and they press in onto Jesus and the Father and this boy. Now, I would think, not wanting to make a spectacle of this little family's pain and perhaps not wanting notoriety solely as a miracle worker, Jesus acts quickly. Now, he quickly rebukes the unclean spirit. This is an unclean spirit. It is not a fallen angel. Completely different. It's a demon. It's a low, crass, wicked, evil thing that was never, ever good and beautiful as fallen angels were once upon a time. Its entire existence has been based on pain and misery and hatred towards the human race. He commands this unclean spirit to come out of the boy and never return. Jesus calls it a mute and deaf spirit because this is what it has inflicted upon the boy. Inability to speak, inability to hear, inability to communicate with other image bearers of God. And this unclean spirit immediately obeys as it must. Although a rebellious demon, it must submit to the sovereign God. 
But as it departs, it rends this boy. The parts of the body of this boy that it had controlled, it torments one last time. This boy's vocal cords, which have been silent for years, now unleash a loud shriek. The final convulsion shook the lad so horribly that it left him like a corpse. Many assumed he was dead. It was so violent. He lay there, limp and lifeless after being rigid, horribly rigid. Then suddenly, it's like all of the connections in the body had come loose and there was no life at all. But Jesus took him by the hand lifted him up, and he, the boy, arose. It was not a lifeless body that Jesus was lifting. On the contrary, the boy was now vibrant with life and energy, and he, the boy, arose by means of the strength that Jesus imparted to him when he lifted him up. The boy himself now was also able to get up and stand erect. And Matthew tells us from that very moment when the demon left, This lad was completely cured. This is not a partial cure. This is not a cure over time. This is what we see time and time again in the Gospels. When our Lord heals, he heals completely, suddenly, and utterly. This is what we will all experience when we depart from this life as children of God or when the Lord returns, if he returns prior to that. We will experience a complete and utter and sudden healing of everything that is wrong with us. In verse 28, Mark wrapping up says, and after Jesus had gone indoors, gone inside a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast out the unclean spirit? Yeah, that's a really good question. As we'd seen, they'd been successful before, but they weren't this time. Why? According to Matthew, Jesus answers the question by saying, because of your little faith. Essentially, Mark's report of Christ's answer amounts to because of your slack or slapdash prayer. Note well, Jesus doesn't tell them it's because you don't know your Bible well enough. He doesn't tell them it's because you don't understand theology at a sufficient level. No, it's because you are lacking in prayer. There's a message there for all of us. Of course, faith and prayer, these go hand in hand. Where there's little faith, there's often little prayer. And conversely, where there's an abundance of genuine, persevering faith, we also find there fervent, unrelenting prayer. Jesus says this kind, referring to this demon that they just encountered, can come out only by prayer. He's saying, therefore, that in the world of demons, there are differences. Some are more powerful. Some are more malignant than others. The disciples, therefore, should not have allowed their faith to flag the prayers. They shouldn't allow their prayers to take a holiday. They should not have ceased. They should not have have given up so easily. That's the sense we get from this, from Mark and and the other gospel writers, that that they were just expecting something, and when it didn't happen, they lost something. It was like, like in, a, in a football game when the, when, a momentum, when the momentum's taken out of the offense by a good defense, you can see players just lose 
hope, even though maybe they're a better team. They just lose that spirit, that drive. And I think that's what we see happening here with these disciples. Not only does Jesus urge his followers to prayer, he encourages us, us, his followers, to persevere in our prayer. And Paul does too. This is important. Persevering in prayer is vital. And beautifully to the story, Luke adds, and Jesus, and he, Jesus, gave him back to his father. Fully. He gave this little boy fully back. This relationship that could not be full because of this demon now could be full. Jesus gave this gift to the father and to the father's boy. And this man did what every earthly father should do. We should unabashedly bring our children to the living Christ. We must realize the limitations we have inherited as earthly fathers. We must call upon Christ's mercy to heal our children and make them whole spiritually and physically. And contrary to what our wicked world would have us believe, fathers are important and godly fathers are vital. So fathers, love, care for, and protect your children. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out for your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Join me in prayer, and then we'll have a closing hymn. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our Father. Father, bless these men amongst us that that are fathers. Bless those amongst us, these these men and boys who will be fathers, Lord, that we may learn from your word how to be godly fathers. Guide us in this, Father. Bless these families as they go out today. I pray for the children that are here, Father. I pray for them that they may be obedient to their fathers and to their mothers, that they may learn the proper fear of God, that they may learn the proper love that we have for Christ. Bless all these families as they go through the day, Lord, if the celebrations that may occur afterwards, bless these celebrations. And may all of it glorify you. May all of it be focused on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.